Yes, it's very nice to be back with the Sati Center again. I so appreciate the Sati Center. I mean, I've attended many classes here and yeah, it's given me a platform to do some teaching as well. And so I really appreciate the Sati Center. It's just great. So the Paryana Vaga, the way to the far shore. I'm going to share the screen so you can see what I'm talking about. So the first thing is the Sutta numbers. There are two ways the Paryana Vaga gets numbered. Some are zero relative. The Paryana Vaga starts out with a backstory about how this came to be. And on a scale of one to a hundred, the odds of the backstory being anything other than somebody's fiction, I put it exactly one. Okay, it just, it's cute. Uh, it has nothing to do with the Paryanavaga's teachings, uh, but some people number the suttas with it as number one, which I think is wrong. That should be number zero. And then others number things starting with uh the first sutta is number one. And so you have to be really careful. If somebody says, oh, take a look at Sutta Nipata 5.15. Are they talking about the 14th sutta or the 15th sutta? Or the 16th sutta? Uh, yeah, okay. So I'm gonna use the zero relative. The first sutta will be number one. And that's what these numbers over here, that's how that's all set up. Okay. And that's what Bhikkhu Bodhi uses. And his translation is quite good if you have that one. Access to Insight uses that. It has some from uh, John D. Ireland. And uh, I believe all the suttas are there from Tanasaro Bhikkhu. The method two, where the first sutta is number two, is K.R. Norman and Sutta Central. K.R. Norman is the most accurate translation and also the most difficult to work with because it's accurate. It's kind of hard to read, but uh, there's a, a great book on it. Uh, if you want, there is no digital version. I checked Amazon this, yesterday afternoon to see if there was a digital version yet. Um, what book so, was that, Lee? Say again. What book, was, what book was that, Lee? It's called The Rhinoceros Horn by K.R. Norman. Thank you. And it's a translation of the whole of the Sutta Nipata, not just the way to the far shore. And uh, yeah, it's quite good. So I will be referring to things using the zero relative counting. The first Sutta is number one. But we'll look at stuff at Sutta Central, which uses the other one. So hopefully it won't be too terribly confusing there. Uh, the suttas have a bunch of epithets for the Buddha, descriptions of him. Uh, this is, the, this you can look at later. I assume everybody has this link. Uh, Rob sent this out in the, Original, everybody's got this if you want it. Yeah. Um, uh, to f 
The translations, the, these are the translations of book five that you can find. This is just for your reference in the future. And then the Pali. Um, this particular page tells you how to find the Pali in a sutta. And it's the easiest way to do it. Okay, I'm not going to go over the whole thing. I'll give you a demo when we get to that. And then the one that mostly I'm going to be working with is the summaries of the suttas. All right. So I think we're ready to get started on the suttas. And the first one is to Ajita. And my summary is, a summary is not possible, just read the sutta. Um, so that's what we're going to do. So you can see I have the English and the Pali. The way I got that, and this is a good thing to know about Sutta Central, is you need Bhikkhu Sujato's translation. It doesn't work for most other translations. And then you click Views, and you set it to English or Spanish or Indonesian, whichever you want. And then you view the Pali side by side or line by line. I find it easiest to work with line by line. Okay. All right. By what is the world shrouded, said Venerable Ajita? Why does it not shine? Tell me, what is its tar pit? What is its greatest fear? Okay. The question is not exactly clear of what's going on, but the answer is helpful for figuring out. The world is shrouded in ignorance. So we can't really clearly see what's going on is because of our ignorance. The Pali word is avija and not knowing. Vija is to know something and avija would be not knowing. So you can even see the avija here. And if you double click the word, oh, it pops up. All right. So you can see some of the poly. Some of the words won't show up. Loco is world, right? So avija hinders the world. Avarice and negligence make it not shine. And then it says prayer is its tar pit. And I'm like, what? What? What is he? What is he talking about? Um, I call longing its sticky lime. So this is K.R. Norman. So rather than prayer, it's longing. And he translated not as tar pit, but as sticky lime. How do you get caught? with your longing, your desire. Suffering is his greatest fear. And you can see Dukkha right down here. And if you know uh, Abhaya, this fear, right? So um, what we're afraid of is that we're going to experience Dukkha. I once made the comment that all aversion is, is re, uh, related to fear. And somebody said, 
I hate broccoli, but I'm not afraid of it. And I said, actually, you are. You're afraid if you put it in your mouth, you will experience unpleasant Vedana. So, yeah, fear is what drives us. And it's fear of, well, Dukkha Vedana or fear of Dukkha. And back to Ajita, the streams flow everywhere. What is there to block them? Tell me the restraint of streams. By what are they locked out? So the streams is all the stuff that happens that's, well, disturbing your peace. They're blocked by mindfulness. Okay, that's how you deal with it in the moment. So when stuff is happening that you don't want to happen, uh, you know, this is, this is about crossing to the far shore. Okay. So if there's a stream coming by that you don't want to be caught in, then the first thing is mindfulness. I tell you the restraint of streams, they are locked out by wisdom. So, give you an image. There's a river coming along and there's a place where it divides. And one part is pretty narrow and another part is quite wide. And and the wide part is our normal way of processing the world. Uh, in modern neuroscience, they talk about the default mode network. You're probably very familiar with the default mode network in that when you get distracted, <laughs> that's the default mode network running. Okay. But there's this other narrow part where the river divides called mindfulness. And the Buddha is saying, yeah, put some more energy, not in your distractions, your default mode network, but in the mindfulness. And then use wisdom to build a dam across the default mode network. And I think that full awakening is to basically shift the river so that it's all going down the mindfulness when there's nothing to do. The default mode network is what runs when you have nothing else going on. And what we want is a new default, and the new default is mindfulness. And the way to dam up the current bigger, wider default mode network that we run all the time is wisdom. And then we can dam it up and we can open up the mindfulness one. And I think that's what the Buddha is talking about here. That wisdom and mindfulness, that which is name and form, when questions, please tell me of this. Where does this all cease? Okay, name and form is Nama Rupa. Name and form is a literal translation. Sometimes you see, particularly in talking about dependent origination, you see it as mind and body. Um, it's used in many different circumstances, and I don't think there's one really great translation that captures all. Um, I like concept and manifestation. If I say to you, cell phone, 
you you know what that is. You know what a cell phone is, right? That's that's the name. That's a concept. There's a manifestation. This is a rupa. All right. This is the manifestation of it. And mostly what we are dealing with is our concepts and the manifestations of those concepts. And what Ajita wants to know is, where does that come to an end? And he also wants to know that wisdom and mindfulness, where does this all cease? This question you have asked, I shall answer you. Where name and form cease with nothing left over. It's with the cessation of consciousness. That's where they cease. Okay. You know, that sounds really weird. Is enlightenment just going unconscious? That doesn't make much sense. Right? So what's going on here? The cessation of consciousness shows up in a number of suttas, and it generally tends to show up in suttas that are fairly early. If I go back to my summary, which doesn't have a summary here, it says, concerning the cessation of consciousness, see Digha Nikaya 11 and Samyutta Nikaya 2253. Vijnana is the word we usually translate as consciousness, and it literally means divided knowing. Okay, so to understand this, let's take a look at Diganikaya number 11. So these are some verses at the end of a, a very nice fairy tale. Okay, and there's a monk who wants to know where the four elements cease without remainder. And he goes up through all the heavens trying to find the answer. Nobody knows. And finally, Brahma says, hey, you look like a Buddhist monk. Go ask the Buddha. And so he asked the Buddha. And uh, the, the answer is, you've asked your question wrong. You should ask, where do earth, water, fire, and air no footing find? Where long and short, small and great, fair and foul, where name and form, and he has wholly destroyed, which would be one way to translate the Pali. But a better way would be all comes to an end or stopped. And the answer is where consciousness is signless, limitless, and all illuminating. Consciousness that's signless. It's a cell phone, right? How did you know it was a cell phone? Oh, well, it's a rectangle. It's got a screen on it. It's thin. It's got cameras on the back. These are the signs of a cell phone. Okay. Can you see the bird and the flowers? Yeah, you see the bird and the flowers? No bird or flowers only colored shapes. Your mind makes the bird and the flowers. This is Sanya, which is one of the five aggregates. Okay? And we go around Sanyaizing, 
conceptualizing. Usually sanya is translated as perception, but I think a much better translation is conceptualization. And so you conceptualize those colored shapes as a bird and flowers. And you do that by picking up the signs of the colored shapes. The signs of the colored shapes are the signs of a bird and the signs of a flower. Okay, so yeah. What the Buddha is saying is that Nama Rupa comes to an end with consciousness that's not grasping onto the signs, that's not conceptualizing what's going on. And that consciousness is limitless. If you can do that, you realize that normally what we're doing is interacting with the world in terms of our concepts. We go around conceptualizing the whole world. But if you don't conceptualize and can still remain conscious, you realize it's all like that. It's, it's like you're experiencing the world raw without any conceptualization on top of it. It's signless. And so it's limitless because, well, you're not conceptualizing any limits and you realize, oh, it's like this everywhere, even in the places where I'm not getting the sensory input. It's where I'm not getting the sensory input, I'm not conceptualizing, obviously, and where I am getting the sensory input, I'm not conceptualizing. And this is all illuminating. You realize the world is like that. Now, the other thing to say about the world, the only world we know is the world of our senses. The only thing you've ever seen in your life is neurological activity in your visual cortex. Right? You, you, you've never seen a tree. What you've seen is neurological activity in your visual cortex. You've never touched a tree. What you experience when you touch a tree is the pressure receptors in your fingers being activated. And then we interpret all this stuff with our concepts, which, yeah, we got to do that because we have to have to find stuff to eat. We need clothes to wear. We need a house to keep warm and keep the rain off of us. So the conceptualization is actually very useful, but it somewhat hides what's actually going on. And the name and form, the conceptualizing and manifesting that we experience comes to an end with consciousness that is signless, limitless, and all illuminating. Then water, earth, fire, and air, and wind, no footing fine. They're long and short, small and large, pleasant and unpleasant. Their name and form are all stopped or all come to an end. With the cessation of consciousness, divided knowing, all this comes to an end. So the literal word that we translate as consciousness is divided knowing. For example, you're not aware of the pressure on your left foot until I said pressure on your left foot. You weren't conscious of it. But then you divided that sensory input out from the rest of the sensory input. Okay? It's the same with what's in your peripheral vision. 
Oh, yeah, you weren't aware of what's in your peripheral vision until I said it. But then you divided your peripheral vision from what you had been looking at, presumably my face or your book or whatever. Okay, so with the cessation of divided knowing, with the cessation of chopping the world up into bits and pieces, what I call thingifying the world. That's where Nama Rupa comes to an end. And you do that with the consciousness that's signless. You do that with the consciousness that's not getting lost in the concepts that are created by the signs of things. That not only sees through the bird and flowers, it also doesn't get lost in the concept of greeting card or anything else. All right. (laughs) That was a pretty huge amount of material there. Uh, Come on. All right. The finish of the sutta. The cessation of consciousness, that's where they all come to an end. There are those who have been appraised, who have appraised the teaching and many kinds of trainees here. Tell me about their behavior, good sir, when asked, for you are alert. So the people that are training to experience the world without thingifying the world, experience the world without getting lost in concepts, what are they like? Not greedy for sensual pleasures, their mind would be unclouded. Skilled in all things, a bhikkhu would wander mindful. Okay, so, yeah, this is basically the Four Noble Truths. Not greedy for sensual pleasures, in other words, not doing the craving and being mindful. Skilled in all things. Things is Dhamma. You can see Dhamma hidden away in here. Phenomena, skilled in all phenomena. Understanding the phenomenal world and not being fooled by your conceptualizing. Rob mentioned I have a book on dependent origination and emptiness. The title of the last chapter is Don't Be Fooled by Your Conceptualizing. The idea isn't that you never conceptualize. You have to conceptualize to find something to eat. I mean, the Buddha conceptualized. He ate with his hand, but he never ate his fingers. He was conceptualizing, and the food is different from his fingers, right? But he wasn't fooled by his conceptualizing. And that's what we're after, to experience the world from time to time without concepts, just experiencing it raw. All right, that was a huge amount of material. Uh, The rest of the suttas for today won't be quite (laughs) this jam-packed, but I suspect I might have, you know, said a few things that raised a few questions. So if you have questions. Yeah, hi, Lee. Thank you for your interpretation. Um, What did you mean? Could you say a bit more about um, what you mean by experiencing raw for not the phenomenological world as raw what what do you mean by that thank you 
Yeah. So all the words that I could possibly say about it will not capture what it's like. Uh, you have to, you have to experience it. I mean, if, if you've never eaten a mango and somebody describes a mango to you, you have no idea what it tastes like, right? You actually have to bite into the mango. Yeah, so sorry, by, I, by experiencing I, the world raw, I mean, experiencing the world and not conceptualizing your experience. Okay. The, the advice to Bahia, you know, this is Udana uh, 1.10. And the advice to Bahia is in seeing, there is only seeing, in hearing, only hearing, in sensing, only sensing, in cognizing, only cognizing. When you can do that, Bahia, there's no you in that, there's no you in this, there's no you in between. Just this is the end of Dukkha. So if you want to get to that place where you're experiencing the world raw, then the practice to do is the Bahia practice. This is an open awareness practice. And since you're seeing, you would do it with your eyes open. And it's non-dual. You're not seeing tree and house and bird and car and so forth. At first you see seeing, but then you want to step even further back and there is just seeing. Is not even seeing, seeing. There's just seeing. So that's how you would get there. And that's the best that I can do is practice the Bahia practice. One way to do that is when you're going for a walk, someplace where you don't have to worry about navigating back and there's no tree roots or rocks in the path or something. And it's not too busy. I mean, I wouldn't do this in a city. Um, you walk along and see, can you just sort of, it's almost like your mind steps back from the visual field and there you're seeing just the visual field and you're just hearing the auditory field. And if you can do that, then you begin to experience the world without conceptualizing your experience. And when it's going well, what I find is I can sense my feet going up and down, but it's not, I'm not conceptualizing my feet going up and down. There's just the sense of things moving and the visual field coming past me. And so now I've got the seeing, hearing, sensing. The, the mind is the hard one. Get, get good at those first three and then you can try and work with the mind. Is that helpful? Yeah, I, ha I have a sense of it. Um, personally, I have a sense of, of, of that. So I just wanted to um, find out what you thought about it, um, right. just see if there's any correlations. But I'll, I'll talk to you about what I what I personally feel some other time, because I know there's a lot of people on this call. But um, yeah, I think it's a more a descriptive um, uh, practice um, ra rather than a, a defining, conceptualizing practice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's more of a, a creative creative endeavor of how you experience phenomena. Right. How you Thank experience, you. <laughs> experience. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but it's how you it's how you describe that experience is what I'm. Um, I guess where where I feel 
um, yeah. is, what is, we're the, after is, is the value, value of it rather than def, rather than defining it. because we still got to use language, you know. Um, we, we we still got to use language. It's how we use language, I think, is what's interesting about that um, point that the Buddha makes for me, anyway. We actually want to get to the point where we're not even doing language. Okay. Right. So we. So the ideal is just complete silence forever. Well, no, no, not forever. <laughs> but in, in times no, but that's, that's what I'm saying. It's like, well, how how do we use this on a practical level? If um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna integrate this into our into our everyday lives. How do, how do, how does the Buddha integrate this on on a, at, at everyday level? You know, when you integrate it, you're no longer as likely to be fooled by your conceptualizing. That's the whole idea. So, and you, what we the, what we do is we conceptualize. Oh, this yeah. is my cell phone. Well, no, this is a bunch yeah. of plastic and silicon and metal and glass, and it's only temporarily mine. If I lose it, it's not mine. And so we start seeing the world differently. Yeah. Okay. So it's seeing okay. the, the the three marks. Yeah. I'm going to move on to the other questions. Carol. Thank you. Uh, Hi, Lee. I have a quick question. So just to be clear, in the line with the cessation of consciousness, it means with the cessation of conceptualizing. With the cessation of divided knowing with the cessation of chopping your experience up into bits and pieces. So, so there is consciousness, but it's, it doesn't uh, contain the divided knowing. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah, it's and not unconscious. Now, this is my interpretation, okay? The orthodox interpretation is that cessation of consciousness is a path moment. Path moments are an experience without an experiencer that takes you to the various levels, the four levels of awakening. But I don't think that's what's going on because that's a much later idea found in the commentaries, not in the suttas. And so I think what the Buddha is doing is reverting back to the literal meaning of vijnana, divided knowing with the cessation of divided knowing, with the cessation of breaking the world up into bits and pieces, with seeing, just seeing. Mm-hmm. And that's what's there. But you're, but in order to see seeing, you have to be conscious, obviously. Yes. Okay. So uh, if I remember correctly, in the uh, dependent origination, there is also consciousness there. It would be the same as here, the divided knowing. I think it was one of the first uh, steps. Yeah, in yeah. The, it's, it's the third one when you start from uh, ignorance Vijaya. or consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, consciousness in dependent origination gets used in multiple ways, and it's not well defined as to what it means in every time it's being taught. The original version of dependent origination didn't have consciousness as part of it. The original version is Sutta Nipata 4.11. At least that's what I say, and I discuss all this in the book. But, um, yeah, consciousness got added in, and it's more like uh, mental processing as opposed to divided knowing there. 
So it's like it's like the the Buddha in the very earliest was reverting vijnana back to the literal divided knowing. Okay, but as time went on, he or whoever elaborated on dependent origination, so that we now have twelve links, took the understanding of divided knowing, which we think of as consciousness and used it in that way. That appears to be what's going on, uh, but it's it's hard to tell, you know, because... I see it. Oh, okay, yeah. thank you. Thank you right. very much. Victoria. Yeah, thank you, Lee. Um, as usual, I have a zillion questions. I'm going to try to reduce them, but um, right. <laughs> I, for me, all of this smacks very strongly of, um, as you know, my background's more in, in like Christian mysticism and the apophatic versus the cataphatic traditions where the apophatic tradition was vehemently saying um, we cannot use language to define God or define the sacred um, because we're just going to, I mean, talk about divided knowing. Right. Um, and to, so, so the apophatic tradition will only say what is not whereas the cataphatic tradition is trying to define and define and define. So I'm wondering in this context, like the divided knowing sparked in me this question about um, is part of the divided knowing sort of intrinsic to the idea of, of defining in, in other words, or, or parceling out like um, this is what, because even with like words in English, like consciousness versus awareness, because I was thinking consciousness, actually, the way I understand the English word is not the culprit, because that's just the state of like still being alive. Whereas awareness is then entering into this, um, what, you know, what is the world around me? What am I seeing? What am I observing? Does that, I I, I don't know how to, you, you can figure this out for me, because I don't know how to put it. <laughs> Put it in a neat little box. <laughs> so the neat neat little box is there's no boxes and there's nothing to put in it. Okay. okay. So you get to the point where there is no conceptualizing of anything. Right. There's just the raw sensory input. And that can teach you the fact that when we, there is anything, what we're experiencing is our concepts. And our concepts aren't necessarily correct. I mean, yeah. look at the political division in the United States today. It's all about different concepts. Mm -hmm. This is a human. This is not a human. Therefore, you know, and it goes on and on and on like that. So uh, trying to, the, the idea is, can you step back far enough and see the limitations of concepts by actually experiencing the world prior to conceptualizing? Now that you understand the limitations of concepts, don't get lost in your own concepts because you're still going to have to use concepts. That's how you're going to get something to eat. And yeah, the Nibbana as a concept is only described in the suttas, not this, not that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Because you can't say what it is other than... Uh, it's the end of dukkha. It's the end of greed, hatred, and delusion. 
you know, that's about as positive as you can get. It's the end of something. The reason that it's the end of greed, hatred, and delusion is your conceptualizing of the world no longer finds anything for you to be greedy about or hated about or to be deluded about. And I think that's the best I can do for you. Oh, you opened up a whole new can of worms. Well, I'll I'll take it up with you on Tuesday. Okay. All right. <laughs> sure. Kate. Would you say, I'm very uh, newbie. Would you say more about divided concepts? Okay, so it's divided knowing. So when I hold this up, you divide the this from my eyeglasses. It's different. And from the blackout curtain on the wall and from the tanka over there. Uh, in order to see something, you have to divide the something from everything else. Right. And so when you become conscious of something, you divide the something out from all the other possible sensory inputs. And that's what's being talked about. At least that's what I'm saying. But yes, if you're a newbie to Buddhism, I, it took me yeah, about oh, 30 years of practice to come to this understanding. Uh, yeah, I didn't get it right off. But basically, the, the takeaway is that our conceptualizing the world is not particularly accurate. It may be good enough to keep us eating, but it has the inaccuracy of conceptualizing things as worth craving and clinging to, which is the setup for dukkha. Does that help at all? Yes, thank you very much. Okay. Sean. Hello. Hi, everybody. Uh, so my question just relates to, uh, so what's the relationship between the non-conceptualization on one hand and craving on the other? So in what way, uh, if any, how does non-conceptualization, sorry, I can't even say it properly, how does non-conceptualization help to deconstruct craving? By, by getting a deeper understanding of our conceptualizing of the world and how we do that and how it's not totally accurate, then we can see that something we're craving actually we're craving the concept. We don't really know the thing. We only know the concept of the thing. And it might not be totally accurate. So I'm craving this thing, but my conceptualization of this thing doesn't include the fact that it's impermanent or that it's really valuable and I'm going to have to get an alarm system for my house and I'm going to have to up my insurance and it's going to break anyhow and then I'm going to experience dukkha. So we, we're only seeing the attractive properties of the concept and not getting the full complete picture of the thing that we're craving, the fact that it's impermanent, it's not going to give you lasting happiness and it arose dependent on other things and it's only going to stick around while there are supporting conditions for it to stick around. In other words, the three characteristics of Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. We tend to crave things and miss all of the less than desirable aspects of the thing we're craving. 
Uh, you meet a really nice person and you're starting to fall in love with them and you're ignoring the fact that they did that really stupid thing and so forth. And you wind up marrying them and then the stupid thing turns out to be a habitual pattern and there's lots of dukkha and you get divorced and that was lots more dukkha. And it was because you're conceptualizing a, this is the perfect person led you into this state. And we do that with everything. We conceptualize it as to how it's going to be so good for me. And therefore we crave it as opposed to getting an accurate picture. Once we understand the limitations of our conceptualizing, hopefully we can use our conceptualizing to get more accurate pictures in the future. That right. Help? Yes, yes, it does. Uh, just a brief follow-up question, because uh, I've come across this little gem that you probably recognize it. This is from Sanisaro Biku. Where, where he sort of uh, compares uh, so, some of the applications of the uh, three characteristics. And he says, you know, it's like if you speak, you know, uh, your stomach is uh, impermanent uh, uh, and non-self, food is impermanent and non-self, then why don't you just stop eating? You know, it's the hunger that drives you. It's not the fact that you misperceive the food. It's because you're hungry and it doesn't matter if it's uh, uh, impersonal and non-self. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, and I guess what this points to is that, you know, with certain things like our physical survival, uh, we will always need to acknowledge some of the craving that just allows us to yeah. uh, continue. But then the difference between the sort of physical and the mental is that where that mental hunger then can be extinguished. Uh, right. is, that, is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's very good. There are things that we have to do physically, like yeah. eat, breathe, go to the toilet, etc. Okay, all of these, yeah, there, there is, there is a biological need that needs to be taken care of, and yeah. you have to take care of that. But we have so much more going on in our lives that we tend to crave. And we're not getting a clear picture of the things we're craving and don't see the, the less than perfect aspects of the things we're craving. It may be that you crave something, you see it really clearly, you see it's not going to get what you want it to give you, but it, it turns out to, it's useful and you can deal with the fact that eventually it's going to break or wear out or whatever. Yeah. And then, okay, no dukkha. But get the clear, don't be fooled by your conceptualizing. When you conceptualize, get as an accurate a picture as possible because all concepts are not what the thing is they're just your concepts in other words all concepts are wrong but some are useful okay excellent. thank you very much thank you. sure bye yeah hello hello um you know i in my um understanding is a lot of times what we express or respond is something like to do with a name and form like um you know through the perception Sometimes we see things and we presume and assume, and then that becomes my habit to look at things. It's kind of clouded, as you mentioned here. And then that, that is within the, the consciousness establishes the way of looking with the cloudiness and delusion. Right. So um, my interest is, my interest is like every time in the dependent origination, when I when I come to responses, it's already name and form and all the way to down to the like uh, <laughs> craving. And uh, 
and then Buddha says clearly, like mindfulness will help me, but yes. I, I feel like I am entangled in that a lot yeah. of times. So if you yeah. can um, talk about it a little bit to lighten up, like uh, I feel like right now I'm in the like consciousness. How do I, you know, like uh, change my habits and how do I change my anusawa or you know asawa? You right. know, that is the like uh, oh you know I'm a, a game presuming i'm already already again assuming that's yeah. what's happening in daily life right yeah i mean we're all entangled in this stuff and the way out is practice not being entangled and the the advice to bahia i mean i got this understanding by doing well, Tibetan Dzogchen practice, but I, I say to my Tibetan friends, the Bahia practice is the start of Tibetan Dzogchen practice, and they all get upset because, well, never mind, they're attached to their concepts. But the, the, the Bahia practice of experiencing the world prior to conceptualizing the world, and notice, oh yeah, I'm laying something on top of what's really there, and the thing I lay on top of it isn't necessarily accurate. So yeah, the only way I've ever made progress on the spiritual path is by doing the practice. And the Bahia practice is a really great practice. Um, once you get the hang of it while going for a walk, you can actually do it while you're sitting. Sit down, open your eyes, and just try and rest in the non-conceptual visual field, the non-conceptual auditory field, the non-conceptual tactile field. And the more time you can spend hanging out in the non-conceptual experience of the world, the more you understand the limitations of the concepts. You can't get rid of the concepts, but you begin to get their limitations. And so now when you recognize, oh, I'm starting to crave something, what I'm craving is a concept. What are the limitations of this concept? And then maybe that backs us all for the craving. That's the hope, at least. Okay. Thank right. you. Sure. All righty. So luckily, most of the rest of the suttas here are not quite as difficult as this one. This next sutta, looking at, this is number 5.2. Who has succeeded on the spiritual path? That's the question. Those leading the spiritual life among sensual pleasures, rid of craving, ever mindful. Okay. Because we have so many suttas to try and cover, and we're already... Um, 10 minutes behind my schedule in my mind. I'm just going to leave this here. But this, this, is, this is what it takes to succeed on the spiritual path. There are going to be sensual pleasures out there. Don't get hooked. You know, don't, don't lose your way. Don't get lost in the craving. And keep your mindfulness up. That's really what's necessary. There is... A sutta in the numerical discourses here. Um, and it's it's interesting. 
part of this particular this 5.2 is interpreted in six different ways in this particular sutta. And it's worth reading to see what the various ways of interpreting this are. And the Buddha says that he had one specific way in mind, but he liked them all. So you can access it from here, but we're not going to go into detail on that. Okay, the next one, 5.3, why do people perform sacrifices in the hope of escaping old age and death? Does it work? No. What does work? Wisdom, calm, freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion. So most spiritual practices across all religions are in some way or another trying to escape dukkha, right? It might be escaping old age and death, which is, well, the, the sort of inevitable dukkha. I mean, death is inevitable. I mean, yeah, okay, you're not dead yet. That's a good thing. What are you going to do with the fact that you're not dead yet, given the fact that at some point you will be dead, right? Performing sacrifices is not going to get you there. What works? Wisdom, calm, freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion. We can take a look at... So that's the one we just skipped. Look at the bottom of this one. Those devoted to sacrifice, if not by sacrificing, crossed over in its birth. It's not rebirth. Jati, there's no re there. In old age. Then who exactly in the world of gods and humans has crossed over birth and old age, good sir? I ask you, please tell me this. Having appraised the world high and low, having looked at the world and seen it as clearly as possible, there is nothing in the world that disturbs them. Peaceful, unclouded, untroubled, with no need of hope, they've crossed over birth and old age, I declare. Um, Norman translates this slightly differently. He for, for, he for whom, having considered what is far and near in the world, there are no commotions anywhere in the world, I say, calmed, without fumes of passion, without affliction, without desire, has crossed over birth and old age. So, yeah, understand how the world works. This is, this is the insights. My teacher, Ayakima, defined an insight as an understood experience, right? If you just have the understanding without the experience, well, that's better than not having the understanding. But it's going to be transformative if you have the understood experience. If you have the experience with no understanding, you know, that's just confusion. So, yeah, basically appraise the world high and low. In other words, understand how the world works. And then peaceful, unclouded, unclouded by greed, untroubled by aversion, with no need for hope, 
They've crossed over birth and old age, I declare. Again, I'm not going to stop for questions on this one. But uh, basically, yeah, sacrifices aren't going to get you there. What's going to get you there is practice. You know, it's, it's the old joke. Uh, a tourist stops someone on the street in New York and asks, how do I get to Carnegie Hall? And the reply is practice. Yeah, well, it's the same for us. Okay. What is the source of dukkha, creating an attachment? How do the wise cross the flood of dukkha? Expel delight and dogmatism, uproot consciousness, forego becoming. And again, we have the cessation of consciousness talked about here. So take a look at this one. Uh, please tell me, I think you know, where do all the sufferings, the dukkha, come from? And all the in the, all their countless forms in the world. Why is there dukkha? You've asked the right question. I shall tell you. Attachment is a source of suffering. We have the Pali word upadi here. Upadi is a very interesting word. Worldly possessions or belongings, acquisitions, according to the commentaries, including the body, Attachment to such possessions forming a basis for, it's not rebirth, it's becoming, okay? Uh, so cause, ground, the cause of dukkha, the ground of dukkha, the, the necessary condition for the arising of dukkha is upadi. And uh, I meant to bring up, something else let me do this right quick uh, so upadi is a very interesting word upadi has two distinct shades of meaning primarily in accordance with its etymology it means foundation basis ground substratum support so yeah the the things that you require for to keep your life going you know a house and some food and some money in your bank account things like that secondarily particularly in majima 26 it says, wife and children, men and women, slaves, goats and sheep, fowl and pigs, elephants, cattle, horses, mares, gold and silver are referred to as upadi. Perhaps the term assets will do justice to both senses, since assets are things laid by which one relies upon. Upadi covers the whole gamut of footholds or assets, which in which culture provides for measuring self-identity, gender, nationality, ethnicity, rank, occupation, power, wealth, status. This is from John Peacock, who's actually quite a, an excellent scholar. And then we have Bhikkhu Bodhi's footnote over here. 
The root meaning is foundation, basis, ground. In the commentaries, various kinds of upadi are enumerated, among them the five aggregates, etc. Nanamoli renders the term as essentials of existence, which obscures the clear contextual meaning. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi has tried to capture by using the word acquisitions, where its objective meaning is prominent as it is here in Majjhima 26, and acquisitions acquisition where its subjective meaning is prominent. Nibbana is called the relinquishing of all acquisitions. You can see Upadi in here with both meanings intended. So I think of Upadi as all the accoutrements of your lifestyle. Okay, so if we go back to the Sutta, all the accoutrements of your lifestyle are the source of suffering. And that's everything from your gender, your nationality, your cell phone, your car, uh, your friends, all of these things, if you get attached to them. That's where the dukkha comes in. So upadi and all its countless forms in the world. When an ignorant person builds up upadi, the accoutrements of their lifestyle, that idiot returns to dukkha again and again. So let one who understands not build up attachments and contemplate the origin of dukkha and birth. Okay, again, it's jati, not rebirth. Whatever I ask you, you have explained to me. I ask you once more, please tell me this. How do the wise cross the flood of birth, old age, sorrow, and lamentating? Please, sage, answer me clearly, for truly you understand this. Okay, so the problem is attachment to the accoutrements of your lifestyle. So how do we cross over the flood? How do we cross over the flood? Remember the simile of the raft? You're on the near shore, and you want to get to the far shore, the near shore is dangerous because there's a lot of craving and clinging going on here. But you don't have a bridge or a ferryman to take you across. You make a raft and use your hands and feet to propel the raft to the far shore. Okay. The far shore is the name of this collection. All right. So how do we cross the flood? What's, what's the raft to get us across? I shall extol to you a teaching that is apparent in the present, not relying on tradition. The Buddha is very much about don't rely on tradition or, you know, how many books somebody's sold or their YouTube channel or anything. You know, it needs to be seen in the present. Having understood it, one who lives mindfully, here we got mindfulness again, may cross over clinging in the world. And then the next verse is great. Once you've expelled relishing and dogmatism, relishing I've seen translated a bunch of different ways, delighting, uh, you would expect to see nandi, that's delight. Nandi, joy, pleasure, delight. Once you've expelled delight and dogmatism, getting lost in what's going on, um, so the first time the 49ers won the Super Bowl, I went to downtown San Francisco because that's where I live. And people were lost in delighting that. 
The next time they won the Super Bowl, I had just come back from Asia and had been practicing. And now can I go to the celebration and not get lost in the delight, but enjoy it? And yeah, that's what I've tried to do. So I get rid of the delight and dogmatism. When you're dogmatic about something, you don't have an open mind. You really are going to have to change your mind to get anywhere else. I mean, duh, you can't get anywhere else unless you leave where you are. And that applies to your mind. Whatever views that you have need to be held very lightly. The teachings on right view sometimes are the Four Noble Truths, sometimes dependent origination. But in the Sutta Nipata, it's about not holding to fixed views, keeping an open mind. Having uprooted consciousness, having uprooted divided knowing, they don't continue in existence. They don't continue in bhave, becoming, right? Existence is a translation, and sometimes it's good, but I think here would be becoming. You're not giving birth to yourself in new ways. You're not constructing yourself in new ways. A bhikkhu who wanders meditating like this, diligent and mindful, calling nothing their own, would, being wise, give up dukkha of birth, old age, sorrow, lamentation, right here. So the key thing is expelling delight and dogmatism. Don't get lost in the pleasures of existence and do keep an open mind. Great. That's basically what it says. Surely those you'd regularly instruct would also give up dukkha. Therefore, having met, I bow to you. Hopefully the Buddha may regularly instruct me. Any Brahmin recognizes a knowledge master who has nothing unattached to sensual life, clearly has crossed this flood, crossed to the far shore, kind, wishless wishless. A wise person here, a knowledge master, having untied the bond to life after life, free of craving, untroubled, with no need of hope, has crossed over rebirth, or crossed over birth and old age, I declare. So wisdom, mindfulness, not being attached. That's basically how you get there. Questions, comments on this particular sutta? Victoria. I was waiting courteously for other people, but <laughs> um, okay, Zillion again as usual. Um, well, first of all, the 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 um, the dukkha. Well, this is too maybe for a longer discourse, but but I don't believe that all religions are after the cessation of dukkha. Yeah, yeah, very much not and, so. Um, because a lot of religions have the sense of um, that that because that 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 it's appropriate to go through dukkha in order to achieve 
nirvana. I mean, I'm using the Buddhist terms, but but as they would translate in other religions. But I'm not going to go down that path right this second. Um, the thing I was wondering about was the um, upadi, um, and it's a nitpicky thing, but to me it makes a big difference, translated as acquisitions versus assets, because acquisition implies that you are going about the practice of trying to acquire which to me already falls into the trap of um, craving in some form because you wouldn't acquire it if you didn't want it. Um, whereas assets, especially if, it, if, it, if it's an expansive definition like nationality and um, gender and all that right. stuff, um, if, if, that, if those are all included in the term assets, then to me that's a more accurate word, I would say, insofar as it doesn't, we don't crave our gender, we have it. We don't crave our national, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it, they're, they're givens. There's certain just attributes. Attributes might be a word. I don't know. What do you think? So basically the, there's craving and clinging. If you haven't got it, then there's the craving part going on. And if you've got it and you're attached to it, that's the clinging part. And the Buddha says both of these are problems. And Upadi actually captures both of those terms. Oh, okay. so it's a whole... Yeah, the stuff whole. you're going after and the stuff you got. If if you're lost in any of that, that's the setup for dukkha. So don't do that. So so what would be, though, an ideal... I get it now in the Pali, that's that's clear. What what would do you think would be the most accurate English word we could use for that? Because it's... it's well, this is the problem. Pali has shades <laughs> of meaning that just English doesn't capture. That's why I read you the two long footnotes to try right, and give right, you a right. sense right. of what this word means. And the best English word that we can use is upadi, which right. okay. unfortunately is not there. <laughs> touche, touche. Okay, got it. Thank you. Right. Sean. Hello again. Uh, so I just want to go back exactly to upadi uh, or upadana as well. I think that would be the closely related word. Uh, and so just a note on translation. So Thanissaro um, Bhikkhu uh, translates upadana as feeding in some of his texts, such as the shape of suffering, which uh, concerns with uh, dependent origination. Um, and um, yeah, so... so uh, and and what it reminds me of, so, the, so there's the translation itself, which is very kind of vivid, at least for me. And what it reminds me of is sort of it feels like a parallel, a bit like to evolutionary theory. I know that's a bit of a random thing to connect to, but you know, in evolutionary theory, uh, you know, the the um, focus is very much you know on adaptation, the process of adaptation, the service of survival, uh, just to kind of simplify it. And and it's always seemed to me like it's. Uh, uh, quite a good parallel. So my question would be, one, uh, could you comment on the translation uh, of Upadi of Upadana as feeding in both its physical and mental dimensions, how that lands for you? And number two, uh, you know, how would you feel about drawing the parallel between that and, you know, let's say evolutionary theory and its view of, you know, life as uh, adaptation or process of survival? Yeah. So... Upadana usually gets translated as clinging. Mm -hmm. But at the time of the Buddha, so 
Thomas Earl Biku's book, The Mind Like Fire Unbound. You've got yes. to read that book. That's a brilliant book. Okay. And so the fire similes throughout the suttas make a lot more sense when you understand that they thought of fire clinging to its fuel. Yeah. So we would say a fire is blazing and they would say a fire was clinging. Uh-huh. Okay. So <clears throat> we are clinging. In other words, we're blazing with the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. Okay. And what is it that we're clinging to? Well, the five aggregates, basically. Uh-huh. And the aggregates, the five aggregates, the five khandas are categories of experience. They're concepts. Okay, we experience physicality, uh, physical phone, and we experience Vedna, we experience our concepts, we experience our thoughts, emotions, memories, etc. And we experience consciousness. And so we set those alight with the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. Some of the stuff, particularly the Rupa, and the thoughts and emotions and memories and intentions, we are our upadi. You don't think of your pleasant experience as an asset or anything like that. So it's a bit more over there that we tend to set a light and have the clinging associated with it. But particularly for uh, physical and mental assets, which would be the rupa and the sankara bits. Yeah, that's the upadi, and we set them alight. So you've got upadana blazing with the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. In other words, that's the thing that we're after. So it's a slightly different shade of meaning, but they're they're really close together. Uh, As for evolution, basically evolution is just simply looking for things that work, you know, what actually makes this organism survive long enough to reproduce. That's it. It, It's there. And so it's, it may be because there is craving or clinging or both associated with both of those. It may be mindless. I mean, I don't think that amoebas are doing craving and clinging. I'm pretty, pretty yeah. sure the trees aren't doing craving and clinging. I mean, they grow towards the sunlight, yeah. but that's because, you know, the cells in the dark grow faster than the ones in the light. And this is an evolutionary thing. So I don't think that craving and clinging are necessary for evolution. But as you get a more sophisticated organism, then the craving and clinging does show up. I mean, your dog goes into heat. <laughs> that's craving. Yeah. Right. Well, okay. So for evolution, it's very useful for the dog to go into heat because that ensures the survival of the species. So it does get, it does get used along the way once the organism becomes sophisticated enough. And then when it gets to our level of sophistication, we have not only the cravings, the, the clingings, we've got the assets as well that we think are ours. Okay. I see. Nice. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for being here and doing this. Um, I'm watching uh, the delight in my appurtenances of my lifestyle and noticing how much it means to me. Um, 
And I'm wondering, this is sort of a two-part practical question. I'm wondering if there's a way besides daily meditation practice um, and being aware to sort of nudge my detachment from those things a little bit quicker. And then the second part is when you take delight, um, it, it seems like it's not intrinsically a bad thing that you have to reject. Um, and so I'm wondering about the balance, um, how to achieve detached delight. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 So how to achieve detached delight. Yeah, that's something I've been working on for decades. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really tricky. So, okay, in Buddhism, they talk about the three personality types, the greedy type, the aversive type, and the deluded type. Well, I'm very definitely the greedy type. And so, yeah, um, when I first encountered the suttas and there was all this thing about, yeah, not getting attached and not taking delight and delight and so forth. Yeah, it's like, I'm not too sure about this sort of stuff. But it, so remember, you're getting this from a greed type. Okay. <laughs> but I, I think that it is possible to enjoy the pleasant Vedna of an experience without having attachment without having craving or clinging. You know, it's just a pleasant experience and you're just there with it. It takes mindfulness to do that because the the default is it's pleasant. I want more. I want to get it again. I want to make sure it doesn't go away. And it's your mindfulness is go, oh, this is pleasant. I'm just going to enjoy it. So mindfulness seems to be the key for doing that. Uh, I don't always manage. I get lost. Uh, this is just what happens. But that seems to be the key is, is the full awareness of what's going on. The, the other things that are helpful is again, the, the conceptualizing, uh, the, the, the craving and clinging that arises around the incoming pleasant Vedna is arising around the concept of how the pleasant Vedna is coming whatever it's giving it to me, it's this thing or it's this person or it's this situation. But that's a concept, right? Now, can I see the concept more clearly? Can I see the concept is a concept of something that's impermanent, not going to give everlasting happiness, and in fact is dependent on many other things. It's without self, with it's empty. So that's one way to address the delight. There are suttas, there's one that I remember, it's in the Anguttara, I don't have a reference for it, where the, the Buddha says to, I believe it's a Brahmin, you may think that being fully awakened would be a very boring and drab state, but no, it's actually very, very pleasant and wonderful. So I can see that. I notice when I'm having a very pleasant experience, if I can be fully present with that experience, it's even more pleasant than if I'm thinking about, oh, I don't have my camera, I need to take a picture or whatever. Uh, it, just the, <clears throat> being totally in the moment heightens the pleasure of it. And if I'm not thinking about how can I keep it or anything else, mm -hmm. 
I often refer to cameras as a Nietzsche stoppers because that's, you know, you're, you're here and it's a party and you want to stop the Nietzsche because the party's going to go away. So you're going to stop it on your film or whatever. Um, and I know it works because I took a three year trip around the world and did not take a camera. Mm-hmm. And I had to be fully present because this was my one shot to enjoy this view from the top of this mountain or whatever. And I think in in some ways that was much better, especially when I'm sitting on the top of a mountain eating my lunch and this couple walks by in front of me and the, the, the husband is taking pictures like crazy. And the woman apologizes for walking in front of me, which she didn't need to do. And she said, we like to take a lot of pictures so when we go home, we can finally enjoy our vacation. (laughs) I didn't say anything, but that's often how we're running our lives. We we got a delightful situation and there's so much more going on other than just being present with a delightful sensation. Thank you. Yeah, I've completely forgotten your first question. Oh, it's okay. I was asking how to nudge along the um, the process of uh, yeah. letting go of the appurtenance need. <laughs> yeah, right. To see the limitations in things is the mm-hmm. best way. Mm-hmm. One of the ways to see the limitations is to realize, oh, I have a concept and my concepts aren't necessarily fully accurate. Okay. And so... It requires mindfulness and it requires awareness of the three characteristics of Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. So mindfulness and recognizing that what I'm really attached to, what I'm really attracted to is my concept of the thing, not the thing itself. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Victoria. Oh, Lee, I don't know what to do. I have a whole list here. (laughs) Um, I'm gonna have to come up and visit you. Um, the uh, well, first of all, the the in the evolution thing that Sean brought up that that just like exploded in my head of the I've always had the feeling that the lower so called lower um, life forms have an enormous advantage over humans because I'm well, I'm assuming that they that mindfulness is kind of a natural thing because otherwise you'll be eaten you know i mean it's they're they're in the moment and so for us as human beings vis-a-vis you know evolution i always feel like the 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 you know the challenge that we're all facing trying to achieve nirvana which is hard when you've got a, a mind and concepts um is is um what one has to address is the idea of choice in other words like the you were saying um you know there there could be craving and you know animals because if you look at a dog in heat you know you know you know what it wants but by the same token we have the capacity to override which is of course what we're trying to do to get rid of um dukkha um so the question i don't know what the question is exactly except that the, the sense of how choice plays into this um yeah. and 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 refusing to engage with making any choice as it well no never mind that's a choice <laughs> yeah that's a choice in itself <laughs> yeah yeah so okay all of this leads into so many other things there there's the two truths 
or actually what I like to say is there are the two perspectives. This is the relative or conventional perspective, and this is the ultimate perspective. Okay, if I had a soup bowl, if I'd known I would have brought a soup bowl in, is it concave or convex? Right? I mean, if you're going to put soup in it, you better take the concave perspective. If you're going to elevate a tea candle, probably the convex perspective is better. But it's two contradictory things at the same time. It's the same with the two truths. It's, it's not that they're separate truths, it's different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And when we look from the relative perspective, then we choose. You chose to come and hang out with me on this beautiful sunny day. Well, at least in Oakland, California, it's a beautiful sunny day. Uh, you could have done whatever else. So you, you had a choice. From the ultimate perspective, yeah, there aren't any choices. Things in the past have unfolded in such a way that you wound up here. But it's not that one of these perspectives is displaces the other. It's that you need to choose the proper perspective for what's going on. If you want to find freedom, you have to look from the ultimate perspective. And from the ultimate perspective, you're seeing that, yeah, all the concepts are actually empty. You're making them up in your head and you're trying to see the impermanent, unsatisfactory nature of the universe. From the relative perspective, it's like, yeah, well, I need a new cell phone because I broke my old one. And so I'm choosing to go out and buy this particular one or something like that. And we have to operate from both of those perspectives. When you go to cross the street, you need to operate from the relative perspective and choose not to step in front of the bus. Right. But you could also say, well, yeah, from the ultimate perspective, there there has been enough wisdom in this being so that it understands stepping in front of the bus would be deadly and it automatically chooses not to step in front of the bus. But that's a little too complex to actually talk about what's going on. So choice is a relative perspective activity that we need to engage in because we can't operate entirely from the ultimate perspective all the time. And so we drop into the, the relative perspective and we choose to keep the precepts. We choose to go on a meditation retreat. We choose to hang out on a Saturday morning and listen to some ex-hippie computer programmer talk about some suttas. And it's 26 past and my plan was at 25 past, we were going to take a 10 minute break. So you can get up and stretch and drink some water and go have a bio break. And at 25 till 35 past, we'll take a look at four more suttas if we can squeeze them in in an hour and a half. So see you shortly. Okay, continuing on. The next one. Summary, teach me, be keen, alert, mindful, release me from my doubts. Cannot release anyone from their doubts. Teach me the principle of seclusion. Everything is a snare. Don't crave for becoming this or that. Uh, We can look at the sutta itself, which basically says the same thing. I long for your voice. After hearing your message, I shall train for quenching. 
Quenching is the translation for Nibbana. Well then, be keen and alert. You actually have to work at the practice. It's got to be a priority. That's the keen and alert. This is, yeah, this is like mindfulness. You know, pay attention to what's going on. Keen, alert, and mindful right here. In other words, pay attention to what's going on in the here and now. After hearing this message, go train for Nibbana. Uh, I see in the world of gods and humans a Brahmin traveling with nothing. Therefore, I bow to you, all seer. Release me from my doubts. And the Buddha, I'm not able to release anyone in the world who has doubts. But when you understand the best of teachings, you shall cross the flood. In other words, Buddhism is a do-it-yourself project. You get instructions. They're very useful instructions. But, uh, yeah, you're going to have to do the work yourself. The Buddha can't release you from your doubts. There's a story where uh, a merchant from Savati comes to visit the Buddha who's in uh, the kingdom of Magadha. And he says, do, do all of your monks become fully enlightened? And the Buddha says, no. Well, why not? And the Buddha says, well, do you know the way to Savati? Well, of course. Yeah, that's where I live. What's the way? Well, you you know, you go up the road here too, you hit that, and then you take a left and you, you know. And the Buddha says, suppose you give those instructions to someone and they don't follow them. Well, that's their problem, not mine. And the Buddha says, just so. I'm just the shower of the way. Everybody's got to do the practice for themselves. And so Dakota here wants the Buddha to remove his doubts, but no, the Buddha can show the way to the removal of doubts, but you've got to do the practice yourself. <laughs> Teach me out of compassion the principle of seclusion so that I may understand. I wish to practice right here, peaceful, independent, unimpeded as space. I shall extol that peace for you that is apparent in the present, not relying on tradition. Having understood it, one who lives mindfully may cross over. Yay! Once you have understood everything, you are aware in the world, above, below, and all around between, is a snail. Once you have understood that everything you are aware of in the world, above, below, all around, and between, is a snare. Don't crave for this or that. Uh, again, we have bhava down here, which could be translated life after life, becoming after becoming, existence after existence. But I think more accurate, this or that. So once you have understood that everything you are aware of in the world, that's your concepts, right? Once you know that all of your concepts above, below, all around are a snare. In other words, you, you get lost in your concepts. Don't crave for this or that. So this is, again, the Buddha coming back to say, don't be fooled by your conceptualizing, right? We have to conceptualize. I mean, you need it to eat. 
You needed to keep yourself alive, but don't fall into craving because of it. I'm again going to move on to the next one because this is a big one. Upasiva. Alone and independent, O Sakyan. So Sakyan, the Buddha was from the Sakyans uh, in the foothills of the Himalaya. I am alone and independent. I'm not able to cross the great flood. Tell me a support, all seer, depending on which I may cross the flood. Mindfully contemplating, and it should be no thingness, no hyphen thingness. Depending on the perception, there is nothing across the flood. Okay, so this, this is a controversial bit right here. The commentaries and some modern scholars interpret this to mean the seventh jhana, the base of nothingness. As a practitioner of the seventh jhana, I'm going, no, that's not what it's talking about. <laughs> I do not see the seventh jhana here. I see what was talked about earlier. Don't thingify the world. Don't take your sensory input, your visual field, and break it into a bunch of things. Mindfully contemplating no thingness, depending on the perception there is no thing. It turns out that there are no independent things in the entire universe. Everything arises dependent on other things. Nothing has independent existence. I mean, you may think that you have independent existence, yet you are completely dependent on the 14 and a half pounds of air pressure per square inch of your body to keep you alive. If that air pressure were to disappear, I mean, even if you had you know, oxygen coming in through your mouth or nose, you'd still die right quickly. Okay, you're not independent of the atmosphere in which we live. Just the pressure of the atmosphere, let alone the oxygen. You're not independent of the food. I mean, how many of you grow all of your own food? Yeah, I didn't think so. Nobody, right? You're dependent on the grocery store and the people who bring the food to the grocery store and the farmers who grow the food and so forth. You're not an independent thing. You're not independent of electricity. Suppose all of the electricity in the country you live in were to go away. The whole continent, no electricity. How long would you last? You can't buy food from the grocery store because, you know, it takes electricity to make the trucks run to bring the food to the grocery store. And besides, they don't have any lights and the cash registers don't work. Right. And uh, yeah, you maybe you have gas heat, but maybe the thermostat requires some electricity and you freeze. And, and the thought of all electricity disappearing, unless you live in a third world you know, subsistence agricultural place, you probably die within a few weeks. Depends on how many cans of beans you got in your cupboard, right? You're not independent of the guys who are keeping the electricity going. 
when we carve the world up into bits and pieces, when we thingify our experience, we're missing the bigger picture. And so this right here is not saying nothingness. It's no independent thingness. The things of the world are the divisions that we make. We divide the world up into all these bits and pieces because, yeah, we can't take the whole universe in. Our minds aren't big enough. In order to take in the whole universe, our mind would have to be as big as the whole universe. I don't think that's going to happen, right? So we have to break it up into bits and pieces, but we have to realize that our breaking it up into bits and pieces concepts is not a fully accurate picture of what's going on. It might be an accurate enough picture to get us enough to eat and a place to live and clothes to wear. But if we are basically lost in the things of the world, the thingifying that we're done, we're not going to cross the flood. Okay. Mindfully contemplating no thingness, depending on the perception there is no thing cross the flood giving up sensual pleasures refraining from chatter watch day and night for the ending of craving so yeah giving up sensual pleasures don't go pursuing sensual pleasures refraining from chatter how much of your life do you waste just chattering on about nothing or having something chatter on about nothing to you, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of really interesting things on YouTube, some of which are actually kind of useful, but it's also deterring. You can go to YouTube and yeah, I love cat videos. They're great, but I don't think anybody's ever been laying on their bed going, I never watched enough cat videos, right? So, uh, yeah. Look at how you're spending your communication time. In communication at the time of the Buddha was talking. They didn't have any other methods. We've got so many other methods. We've got our computers and our phones and letters. Remember letters? And yeah, there's all sorts of ways to communicate. Make sure that it's useful. And watch day and night for the ending of craving. Notice when the craving comes up and let it go. That's the thing to do. Yeah, we're probably not going to get to the place where we don't crave until we get to at least the third stage of awakening. So the craving's going to come up. Recognize when the cravings come up and let it go. One is free of all sensual desires, depending on no thingness, all else left behind, intent on the ultimate liberation of perception. Might they remain there without traveling on? Okay, if I can get to this place that you're talking about, can I stay there? One free from all sensual desires, depending on no thingness, all left behind, intent on the ultimate liberation of perception. Perception is the word sanya. You can see it right here, right? Uh, as I say, I want to translate it as conceptualization. So 
one free from all sense desires, depending on no thing. It's all left left behind, intent on the ultimate liberation of conceptualizing. They might remain there without traveling on. Okay, if you can get to that point, you will have experienced the world in such a way that you can stay there. If they were to remain there without traveling on for many years and being freed were to grow cool right there, would the consciousness of such a one pass away? And here I think consciousness is being used in our usual way of talking about consciousness. It's vinyana down here. Okay, it's not the divided knowing. The divided knowing is the literal, and occasionally the Buddha uses this. But here, if someone can get to this point of not being fooled by their conceptualizing, their thingifying the world, and were to stay there forever, and they were to grow cold right there, in other words, if they die, would the consciousness of such a one pass away? As a flame tossed by a gust of wind comes to an end and cannot be reckoned, so too a sage freed from the set of mental phenomena comes to an end and cannot be reckoned. So it's possible to ask questions that seem to make a lot of sense that, well, don't make a lot of sense. The, the one that shows up in the suttas, this is in Majjhima 72, I believe, Vajagota. Now, Vajagota was a wanderer from another sect, and he's one of my favorite characters in the suttas. He comes to the Buddha over and over again and wants to know the answer to various questions. And he wants to know the same thing. What happens to an enlightened person after they die? Do they exist? Do they not exist? Do they both exist and not exist? Do they neither exist or not exist? And the Buddha says, Vajagota, if there's a little fire burning right here, would you know there's a fire burning here? Yes, Venerable Sir. If you put more sticks on the fire, what happens? The, the fire blazes up bigger. What if you don't put any more sticks on the fire? Well, eventually it would go out. Vajagota, when the fire goes out, which way does it go? North, south, east, west, up, down? Venerable sir, the question makes no sense. It just goes out. It's the same for an awakened one. There's no more fuel for their passions, and they just go out. So like asking which way does the fire go when it goes out, asking what happens to the consciousness of one who's liberated doesn't make any sense. You can't say anything about it. The, the body of a fully awakened one obviously dies. I mean, the Buddha got old, sick, and died. That happens to everybody, right? But we can't say anything about his consciousness. In Majjhima 38, there's a foolish bhikkhu named Sati, the son of the fisherman, who thinks that his consciousness transmigrates from incarnation to incarnation. Other bhikkhus hear this and try and convince him that's not what the Buddha teaches, but he thinks that's what the Buddha teaches. So the other bhikkhus go tell the Buddha about Sati, and Sati says, tell Sati the master calls. And so Sati comes to see the Buddha. 
The Buddha asks him, is this what he believes? Yes, consciousness transmigrates. And then the Buddha asks, Sati, what is consciousness? It is that which speaks and feels and experiences here and there the results of good and bad actions. Right? So the speaking, it's consciousness is speaking. My consciousness is making these words and throw them at the microphone on my computer so they go into your ear eventually. And feels, you know, I feel thirsty, I drink some water, I feel pleasure, I smile, whatever. And experiences here and there the results of good and bad actions. It, it gets the karmic resultants. You think that's a good description of consciousness? The Buddhist reply, you foolish man, when have you ever known me to speak of consciousness like that? For on many occasions I have said that consciousness is dependently originated. For without uh, supporting conditions, there is no origination of consciousness. And he asks the monks if they think Sati is right, and they go, no, venerable sir, you said the consciousness is dependently originated. And then the Buddha says something very interesting. He says that consciousness is reckoned by the conditions on which it depends. When it depends on eye and sights, it's eye consciousness. Ear and sound, ear consciousness. Nose and smell, nose consciousness. Tongue and taste, tongue consciousness. Body and textures, body consciousness. Mind and mind objects, mind consciousness. Just like a fire is reckoned by the condition on which it depends. If it's burning on a house, it's a house fire. If it's burning in the forest, it's a forest fire. If it's burning on rubbish, it's a rubbish fire. If it's burning on chaff, it's a chaff fire. If it's burning on logs, it's a log fire. So too with consciousness. Consciousness <clears throat> requires a condition. It, it, there's a condition on which it depends. Either five sensory input or input from your mind. It's not an independent thing. And we talk about the sense consciousness, but that's a way of reckoning it. It's not that there are six different types of consciousness. It's just that we talk about it in that way. Just like there are not six different types of fire. Fire is always fuel and oxygen uniting in the presence of heat, whether it's burning on a house or a forest or chaff or rubbish, okay? And then the Buddha starts in with a series of questions and answers about dependent origination that goes on for page after page and is actually very tedious. Okay, but at the end it comes back to monks, knowing and seeing in this way, would you, that's in terms of dependent origination, would you run back to the past wondering, was I? Was I not? What was I? Being what? What did I become? No, venerable sir. Monks, knowing and seeing in this way, would you run to the future wondering, will I be? Won't I be? What will I be? Being what? What will I become? No, venerable sir. Monks, knowing and seeing in this way, would you be inwardly perplexed about the present? Wondering, am I? Am I not? What is this being? Where has it come from? What will happen to it? No, venerable sir. Monk, so you say in this just because I'm your teacher. No, venerable sir. Are you saying this because you know it from your own experience? Yes, venerable sir. If you truly 
understand dependent origination at the deepest level, then you don't think about what was I in the past or what will I be in the future or even what am I now? You realize that you are nothing but the intersection of a bunch of streams of dependently arising processes interacting. That's all there is. And the idea of there being a thing doesn't occur. Joseph Goldstein gave a talk one time that said, you should think of yourself as a verb rather than a noun. And I thought that was really good because we're just a collection of processes, digestive process, circulatory process, endocrine process. But then I got to thinking and I realized there aren't any nouns. It's just that some verbs move kind of slow. You see a tree? Well, it's treeing, you know, it was an acorn and then it changed and it became a giant oak tree and eventually it's going to fall down and then there'll be firewood and then it'll be burned and then it'll be carbon dioxide for some other tree to breathe, right? Once you start seeing past the things of the world, you start seeing the flow of verbs and then you realize that actually all of the verbs are dependent on other verbs and there's really only one verb unfolding we could say the universe is unfolding but the universe is superfluous there's just unfolding when you can get to that then yeah, the question about what happens to an enlightened one after death just doesn't arise because there's just this giant unfolding. That's all that's happening. And the fully awakened one has realized that. And they're not conceiving of themselves in the past or the future or even in the present. There's just sensory input happening and they're not getting attached to it. Another question, one who has come to an end, do they not exist or are they free from disease for eternity? Please answer me clearly for you truly understand this matter. One who has come to an end cannot be defined. They have nothing by which others might describe them. When all things have been eradicated, eradicated to always of speech. Nagarjuna talks about the ultimate as indescribable, inconceivable, indivisible. Once you get the full holistic nature of the ultimate universe, you get it, but you can't talk about it because any word that you use, well, it's a concept. It's the, and the, the indescribable, inconceivable, indivisible nature of the universe doesn't lead, lend itself to concepts. There's just the giant unfolding. And so what I think the Buddha is teaching here is if you can, for example, do the Bahia practice really well, then what you see, what you experience is just the giant unfolding. 
There are no things. You don't thinkify the world. You stop looking at the world in terms of nouns. You start seeing processes, but then you stop seeing separate processes and realize they're all interconnected until eventually there's just unfolding. At least this is my interpretation of this particular sutta. Uh, as I say, the orthodox view is different and some modern scholars interpret it differently, but I'm going to go with what I understand. So, any questions? Bindu. Hi. Um, I'm, I'm quite open-minded about um, rebirth. Um, philosophically and intellectually, um, I get the arguments, you know, um, why, why certain scholars and um, exponents want to just argue for an empirical rebirth or becoming. Um, but I do have a curiosity um, about people's testimonies. Um, and I use the word rebirth rather than reincarnation because I do feel from my meditation that there is a flow, that there isn't a static entity that lives on in a metaphysical realm after death. I do feel that, but I also feel in this vast cosmos of unfolding, um, Stuff just doesn't stop on a on a um, astronomical level, so I don't know what what I'm trying to ask you because I think we'll all find out ultimately for ourselves when we die um, if there is such a thing as rebirth. But I think it's just a very um, rich area for me for exploration yeah. rather than um, seeking a definitive answer because I do I do keep an open mind and I and I and I really enjoy listening to teachers and scholars who have you know alternate views um because it, it it informs my practice I think that's what I I feel and I um I mean, the, 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 the suttas I have read, I haven't read all the Nikayas, the suttas I have read, it, they seem to be replete with rebirth. And to say that's an interpolation from Brahmanism or the Upanishads, it's, it's quite, quite a leap, um, you know, because the, the, my understanding is the suttas were you know, they were being recorded while the Buddha was alive. So it wasn't like it was all kind of just, re, you know, reinterpreted after he died. It was, they were being locked down while he was alive. So I don't really have a question. I just wanted to share some thoughts with you. I, I just wanted to share some thoughts with you. And um, I, think, I think, yeah, for me, there is a distinction between reincarnation which is metaphysical and rebirth, I, uh, which I feel is more of a flow. And I think um, maybe we just don't have the scientific empirical means to investigate this phenomena um, 
on on a on a conventional level because yeah. i remember listening to someone describe rebirth and i think it was venerable gunuratana and he said it's like a fax machine which is it, it's our outmoded way of communication now but you you send a piece of paper from london it arrives somehow in a willy wonka way in san francisco but you don't actually see it physically traveling <laughs> across yeah. the pond yeah. to san francisco it just gets there um i mean maybe you as an engineer or a computer programmer you you know the you know yeah, the I technology know the, I do know the tricks do you know, know the, the tricks yeah so um but also what's curious is that uh, you know when i was um studying at university um there was a book um the the yogins of ladakh and it was two um social scientists from 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 england they went to witness um people you, these yogis walking through walls and doing all kinds of supernatural um exercises and that i i suppose that is for me um an area that i'm really curious about how do you you know okay. in a in a get get your practice to such a level where you can see you're almost like in a matrix mode you 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 can yep. see the, the <laughs> spaciousness you, between let me give you the each. answer before you keep going okay okay sorry Right. I don't know what happens after we die. I have no memory of ever dying, so I, I don't know. Okay, I've heard lots of views and opinions, and they all contradict each other. I do know that the actions that I do have consequences, and some of those consequences will unfold after I, my physical body is dead. Now, is that my rebirth? Well, if it is, okay, that's fine. I think I've done useful stuff, and I don't I don't worry about it. If if there is something else and I go on, which I kind of doubt, uh, everyone who says that all agrees that it, your next station is dependent on how good you led your previous life. And so if I lead my life well, do lead an ethical life, then yeah, it's taken care of and I don't have to worry about it. On the other hand, if there's nothing else, I better lead a full life now. And so if I lead an ethical full life now, I've covered both bases and it doesn't matter. And that's where I've left it. So, yeah, it doesn't, it's not going to give you an answer. And that's all you're going to get out of me. It, it's just that there's so much more that can be talked about. But, yeah, I got no information. So I can't give you anything more than that. So. Anita. Thank you, Lee. I, uh, this is my second time doing this with you, and I think I'm beginning to understand it maybe 2% better. But my question is, um, it seems to be all these teachings are pointing to non-dual to me. Yes. I mean, ultimate concept is self. And once you create self, you create other, you create things, you create... Um, and you're caught because of greed, hatred, del delusion. So what, why, how did non-dual become such a big thing in Tibetan and in Dzogchen and called Rigpa? And why is that word not used in these teachings? I mean, it's so confusing when you look at Bhikkhu Bodhi's use right. of the um, um, 
the commentaries and like, you know, when you go off into nothingness as a state, as a meditative state, rather than what you're talking about, not looking at it through concepts, it just makes it more confusing. So why is non-dual such a bad word? And Well, non-dual as a word, as a concept, didn't exist at the time of the Buddha. Okay, so he had to try and explain it. And rather than invent the word non-dual, he talks about no-thingness. Okay, so he was limited by the ideas that were in, you know, in his culture, just like we are limited by the ideas in our culture. As it became understood that that's what he's talking about, and then somebody along the way invented the concept of non-duality. And the Mahayana took that concept, and maybe it was in the Mahayana tradition where they actually came up with that concept, and they ran with it. But we do find it in the early suttas. I mean, when I read you the stuff from Diganikaya number 11 about where do the four elements cease without remainder, consciousness that's signless and so forth, then the four elements, no footing fine. You don't have high and low, long and short, beautiful and ugly, or Namarupa. So now it's describing non-dual, but it didn't have the word. And so the Buddha used the word, the end of divided knowing, to talk about non-dual, the, the end of consciousness. So we don't find it in the suttas because they didn't have the concept in a easily expressible form. And the Buddha had to elaborate to get people to actually understand it. And it was only later somebody invented a shorthand, non-duality, to talk about it. And so it shows up in the Mahayana. Whereas the commentaries are pretty much stuck at the level of their literal interpretation of the suttas. And they wind up with things like, yeah, seventh jhana when the buddha is talking about something far far more important victoria i'm going to skip over you and take the people that haven't asked before i come back to you so dave oh hi thank you very much for your help you ended the your discussion of sutta as uh you said this is your interpretation uh but not necessarily that of some modern scholars current scholars Okay, and so as another mathematician, uh, <laughs> could you uh, give me a sort of a sense of who those other scholars might be, like Big Bodhi, or just so I can get a sense of other viewpoints? Because I'm I'm hearing yours, but I'd like to have a sense of what modern scholarship might, other modern scholarship might point me to. Okay, so if you go back to that uh, summary from the way to the far shore on my page and look uh-huh. up. Upasiva, which is SNP 5.6. Right. And you look down further at the very bottom of that, the origin of Buddha's meditation by Alexander Wynn is a modern scholar. And he thinks referring, this is referring to the realm of nothingness, the seventh jhana. I have read what he wrote. And when I read what he wrote, I go immediately, oh, no, that's wrong. I mean, it just didn't strike me. And then the the commentaries, I don't, there is the commentary to the Sutta Nipata in Bhikkhu Bodhi's uh, translation in the back of it. So you can look up what the commentaries say there. 
I have mm-hmm. never looked at the commentaries there in any detail. I've seen a little bit where stuff is quoted and I go, I don't want to pollute my mind with what they've got. I don't think they know what's going on. I'd rather take the Buddha's words as they are and work with that rather than to have my mind colored by what the commentaries are saying. I have read the Vasudhimaga, the whole thing. Uh, it's a really powerful book. If you have insomnia, just crack it open anywhere, start reading, it'll put you out. But I didn't find it particularly helpful. There's there's some stuff in there that's helpful. I've read some of the Abhidhamma, and again, I didn't find it particularly helpful. So I'm a sutta scholar. I'm, I want to work with the suttas, and I'm very content to you know, look at modern scholars that are working with the suttas and see what they have to say. And I don't agree with all of them either, but I'm kind of shying away from the commentaries simply because it was written in a different culture so many years later and they missed so many, so many very important points. Thank you. Right. Sarah. Hi there. Thank you. Um, so my question is, who teaches this um, besides yourself? Because I'm, it's very clear to me, I'm not getting anywhere on my own. Uh, and I've been practicing 30 years almost with, you know, IMS, Joseph Goldstein, that kind of lineage, right? Which I love, I absolutely adore. And there's a lot of emphasis on early, early texts. Um, but um, I find, you know, you go to an interview with a teacher and it's, they're just very conceptual. They're talking, you know, they're talking about, and I, I really would love to find someone who who does interviews that are experiential, um, sort of like I'm a psychotherapist. I do internal family systems, and that it's great because it's experiential. Um, and I have um, just stumbled in the last couple of years on Shinzen Young, who oh, good. I feel like I feel like that kind of broke thing. I was like, wait, I've never practiced this way. I'm having a little more trouble getting into that sangha because it's West Coast and. The t- it's a little harder. And that's the hard thing too, is I have a beloved Sangha um, through Mark Nunberg just on Zoom and they, you know, they don't speak this way really a little bit. I mean, I'm trying to figure out how to, how I can hear them speak because I don't want to leave them and sort of move more in this direction, um, less conceptual. That's why I like Shinzen. Yeah. And then also some of the non-dual people I'm wondering about like Locke Kelly, whether he might be someone who's kind of touching into this um anyway i don't know about Locke kelly i mean i know who he is but i don't know enough about his his teaching so i have a good friend here in the bay area named diana clark and we went for a hike last friday and this is exactly what we were talking about and she's a teacher but she's on the west coast here (laughs) again she's she's part of gil fronstil sangha and so um there could be other people in gil's sangha that are teaching, you know, teachers in his sangha that that are looking at this like this. But there's not a lot of people looking at this. I mean, people people like their concepts, and that's where they are. Um, I mean, when I started out, I was very conceptual for for decades of practice before I stumbled into an experience where, yeah, the concepts all dropped away and it was like, oh, wow, that's that's what the world is really like. And so then I began looking for hints of that in the suttas and it was all over the place. Um, well, not all over the place, but it, it occurs in multiple places. 
And um, the teachings on emptiness in the suttas, I mean, it's things are empty in the suttas because they're without self. But everything is said to be without self. And when you really take that to the ultimate level, everything is, yeah, it doesn't have any intrinsic existence. It's just a concept. <laughs> so <coughs> this isn't talked about in many places. Yeah. I talk about it. Uh, a few other people talk about it, but it's it's pretty rare. You might find uh, maybe Stephen Batchelor or John Peacock talking about it, but I don't know. You know, I haven't I haven't had discussion with them on this particular stuff. And um, yeah, it's kind of weird being out here and teaching a bunch of stuff that other people don't teach, like the jhanas like no-thingness, non-conceptuality, and so forth. Um, I'm sure there are other teachers around, and, and definitely in the Mahayana, there's much more looking at non-duality. Okay, but Shinzen, you're giving him a thumbs up, I think. Yeah, Shinzen's very good. Shinzen's yeah. Another qu- very quick question. Um, I, I'm signed up for your retreat on the jhanas in April. Uh, right. And I, well, maybe, and I just, is there a way to contact you with a couple of questions about whether that's appropriate for me? Because I can't concentrate, you know. Don't worry about it. Very well. <laughs> I picture myself like the only person in the hall and everybody else is in their room doing this great stuff. And I, I need like group support kind of, I think. And um, I think you'll get group support on that retreat because people will be in the hall. Now, maybe not everybody will be in the hall. I would say that probably around 75% of the people who come on retreats with me say they don't have very good concentration. Their concentration is less than average. Well, guess what? 75% can't be less than average. And people come in and say, I don't know why I'm on this retreat because I can't concentrate and they learn some jhanas. So yeah, you're not going to get any, any excuse from me. You should be on the retreat on my website, which you can find. Uh, plug my name into Google. There's a there's an email link, and you can send me an email, and we can communicate. The co-teacher uh, Heather Sundberg is also someone who would teach stuff like this, and so you definitely want to meet her. Okay. Uh, she, she has a, a multi-year program that you can get in where she's looking at stuff from this perspective. Right. Great. And then I'll just throw in one last insight dialogue seems to get close also, which I'm pretty involved in where you're, you're doing experiential together, which is, is quite amazing, I think, but not everyone gets it. You know, there's people doing that that are still very conceptual. So anyway, but um, yeah. great. thank you so much. Yeah. Insight dialogue is great. I've done two 10 day retreats with Greg and some, a lot yeah. of other stuff as well. Excellent. Yeah. I'm Highly recommend. Thank Look you forward so to seeing you in April then. Yeah, send me an email. Okay, so it's two people who have asked questions. Carol has asked less questions than Victoria, so you get to go first. <clears throat> uh, thank you. Uh, I have a question, like about uh, the teachers who who teach uh, like no thingness or. Uh, the unfolding, it kind of relates to a lot that has been said in the last uh, sutta and uh, because I found on your website uh, like among others a recommendation for a book called uh, Buddha Essence Buddha Essence by by Daryl Bailey Mm -hmm. so uh, 
I wonder if you are familiar with his other books uh, because he basically in like he has this one book when where he describes uh, in his own terms what's the essence of Buddha's teachings and the suttas basically and in the others he he talks a lot I would say about the uh, like getting a perspective in which you basically perceive uh, the unfolding without mm-hmm. differentiating different things that are there and yeah. it kind of feels like he says that this perspective is the thing uh, in a way uh, to be achieved i yeah. wonder w- what is your view on that and, and yeah. on what he teaches right so i've read several of his books i know him personally he's a really good guy and yeah his his view on that is pretty good the one thing i would say is that he tends to dismiss the relative and promote the ultimate okay and i'm saying you got to have both of them all right but his 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 take on the ultimate view is quite good i haven't read all of his books but i've read Buddha essence, that was his first one. And, and I found it extremely helpful. And then I read his second and third one. And in one of those, it seemed to me he was putting too much emphasis on the ultimate view being superior to the relative view, as opposed to different perspectives on reality. And what, what do you mean by the relative view? The relative view is that, yeah, I'm sitting here in California and this is my cell phone and you're in, I believe you're in Poland. Is that right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, right. And so we're in you know, different places and I have a tanka on the wall over here and a picture of the Patala Palace and these these are my possessions and so forth. So that's the, all the relative view. But working on the relative view is not going to lead to freedom. You've actually got to also work on the ultimate view. And Daryl Bailey's really good at talking about the ultimate view. If you want to... Uh, yeah, read. I actually read all, all his other books. And yeah, yeah I, I really enjoyed them. They influenced my practice a lot, I would say. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, he's, he's good. I mean, he spent 10 years as a monk at uh, uh, Amravati in England. And then he wrote Buddhessence. And then he started going in the direction that, he, that his books go. Yeah, he's good. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Victoria. Yay. <laughs> um, again, I have to I have to choose one out of a million. Um, I I I had had a big. You you weren't entertaining questions at that time, so I'm jumping back a little bit in the discourse. But um, the 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 camera a Nietzsche stopper discourse. <laughs> <laughs> venerable sir um i was thinking um you know and that's like in in western culture that's the faust syndrome um oh augenblick for violadich it's you know wanting to cling to the moment mm-hmm. and and um and not recognizing the nietzsche however um I'm wondering about how that works in the context of being an artist since I'm in the arts and also how it works in the context of trying to help others along in the spiritual path. In other Mm -hmm. words, like, like just to use the camera thing as a simple example, 
um, if Ansel Adams had walked in front of you um, while you were eating your lunch, you know, I would question the, you know, because he wasn't, he obviously wasn't doing it. So, well, maybe he was also, but he, in, as you, you, you know what I'm saying? He had, he had ulterior motives in the sense that he was doing something to contribute to whatever, to me, to the, to yeah. the, be, the beauty in the world, you know? And so there, so the question is, um, and then also if we, if we sort of relinquish that idea, then, is this me that's making all this noise? No, it's fixed. Oh, okay. Um, well, you know what I'm saying, what I'm asking about. It's it's yeah, so, yeah. so there's a bigger picture there. I understand the initial right. syndrome, but on an individual sense, but um, and maybe this also re- relates to the different paths of Buddhism itself. Like, to, to what extent um, should I be also engaged in helping others along the? Well, I can't do it, but you can, and you are. <laughs> Okay, so as an artist, you're doing something different than the guy snapping photographs and missing the scene. I mean, Ansel Adams saw the scene. He couldn't have taken those pictures without truly seeing it and capturing it. Okay, so as an artist, yeah, you're you're doing your artwork. I mean, I still write computer programs for myself. Right. I'm there. I'm totally absorbed. I am enjoying it. it. You know, I got all the bugs out. It works just like I wanted it to. Yeah, it's fine. As for helping others, yes, that's part of what goes on. The, the first precept, I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. Actually, in the suttas, if you'll give me one second, I can actually read you what the first precept is in the suttas. Uh, having abandoned, whoops, come on. Having abandoned the destruction of life, one abstains from the destruction of life. One has laid down the rod and weapon and dwells conscientious, full of kindness and sympathetic for the welfare of all living beings. So the first precept is not just don't kill. It's about one dwells conscientious, full of kindness, sympathetic for the welfare of all beings. So yeah, you wanna you wanna do what you can to help other people. You wanna recognize the interconnected nature of all of us. I mean we're interconnected now in such a way that I'm giving all these words out to you and I'm affecting who you are and how you relate to the world. Okay. Hopefully I'm doing something that makes your world a little bit better for you. Okay. And so, yeah, when you're doing things that have an impact on another, you want to have the impact that it makes their world a better place. And that's certainly what Ansel Adam was doing. Okay, so doing art can be very helpful that, that way. But so can, you know, feeding the homeless or you know, working in a soup kitchen or donating some money to the refugees from Ukraine or whatever. There are lots of ways to be of help. Mm-hmm. Okay, that brings up another question, but I'll let you go. I mean, okay. every, everyone else go. <laughs> right. So the next sutta, Nanda. This one has an interesting thing in it as well. 
People say there are sages in the world, but how is this the case? Is someone called a sage because of their knowledge or because of their way of life? And the Buddha replies, experts do not speak of a sage in terms of view, learning, or knowledge. Those who are sages live far from the crowd, I say, untroubled with no need of hope. So it's not your knowledge that makes you a sage. I mean, in English, we think of a sage as a wise person. But the Buddha is saying that the 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 Muni, right? The Muni, a monk, a wise person. Um, they're wise because of their how they live their life. They live far from the crowd. They're not entangled with other people, and they're untroubled, and they have no need for hope. When I first met Ruth Dennison, who was a very amazing teacher lived in Southern California. Uh, on her station wagon, she had a bumper sticker that said, I feel so much better since I gave up all hope. Which was like, what? I didn't get it. But our hope, that that's, that's a grasping into the future, right? I hope that this goes well for me. I hope when I go to the dentist, I don't have any cavities. If your hope is met and you don't have any cavities, oh, you feel so good. If your hope is not met and you've got a cavity and it's going to cost you money and it's going to hurt and everything else and you got to come back in three weeks when there's an appointment. Yeah, but if you just go to the dentist and take care of it, if it needs to be taken care of, instead of having a hope for one way or another, less a source of dukkha. Okay, this is what's being talked about. In the Tibetan tradition, there's a book called The Flight of the Garuda, and full awakening, enlightenment, is talked about as the absence of fear and hope. The absence of aversion and attraction, basically. Okay? And so a sage is someone who's away from the madding crowd, maddening crowd, and they're untroubled with no need for hope. As to those ascetics and Brahmins who speak of purity in terms of what is seen or heard, or in terms of countless different things, living self-controlled in that matter, have they crossed over birth, old age, good sir? I ask you, please tell me this. So in some of the traditions, spiritual traditions at the time of the Buddha, and even today in India, it, purity is in terms of what is seen or heard. In other words, you're pure based on what you experience. As to those ascetics and Brahmins who speak of purity in terms of what is seen and heard, or in terms of precepts and vows, or in terms of countless different things, even though they live self-controlled in that matter, They've not crossed over birth and old age, I declare. In other words, uh, not good enough. You, you may be leading a really pure life, but you haven't tackled the big existential thing of old age, sickness, and death. So then who exactly in the world of gods and humans has crossed over? I don't say that all ascetics and Brahmins are shrouded by birth and old age. 
There are those here who have given up all that is seen, heard, thought, and precepts and vows, given up all the countless things, fully understanding craving, free from defilements. Those people, I say, have crossed the flood. So the giving up all that is seen, heard, and thought, that's the giving up the the concepts. They're not lost in conceptualization. Giving up precepts and vows, you don't do keep the precepts. You don't keep your vows because you're attached to that. You keep them because you see it works. Okay? You could not kill another because if I kill another, I'm going to hell. You're attached to it. You could not kill another because you see that's a better way to live to take an extreme example. So the giving up precepts and vows doesn't mean that you go out and you kill people and you steal from them or things like that. It means that you keep them because it's the, it's the useful way to behave and who have given up all the countless different things. In other words, they've seen the conceptual nature of reality and penetrated it. Those, I say, have crossed the flood. And then it's basically repeated. So uh, if we got quick questions, we can do that before going on to the next. All right, I'm going on to the next one then. Can, can I just ask a technical question? How are you activating the dictionary on Sutta Central? Because I've double clicked on a um, Pali word and it's not coming up with the meaning. Okay, you click on views up at the top and then you click on English if you want an English dictionary and then you click on either line by line or side by side and then it should work. Okay. Thank you. Right. Activate. Ah, right. Okay. All right. Hemaka. Those who have previously answered me before I encountered Gotama's teaching said, thus it was, or so it shall be. All that was just the testament of hearsay. All that just fostered speculations. I found no delight in that. But you, Sage, explained to me the teaching that destroys craving. Having understood it, one who lives mindfully may cross over clinging in the world. The removal of desire and lust, Hamaka, for what is seen, heard, thought, or cognized here, or anything liked or disliked, is extinguishment. Nibbana, okay? Is Nibbana, the imperishable state. So all the other teachings that Hamaka had heard were just speculations. And... Yeah, he likes what the Buddha has to say. The removal of desire and lust for what is seen, heard, thought, or cognized here. This covers all of our sensory input, whether it's external or mental. The removal of desire and lust for anything liked or disliked. This is Nibbana. This is the Four Noble Truths, right? Okay, Dukkha is the problem. Dukkha arises dependent on craving desire and lust, 
with the end of desire and lust is the end of dukkha. And of course, the fourth one is how you get to the end of desire and lust. Those who have, who have fully understood this, mindful, reach Nibbana in this very life. Always at peace, they've crossed over clinging to the world. The peace that Nibbana brings is actually quite important in the suttas. In the previous book in the Sutta Nipata, book five, the Buddha says that he left home not because he saw an old person, a dead person, a sick person, or a monk. He says he left home because he was seeking peace. Everybody was quarreling. There were the Sakyans. It's a warrior culture. When you think of where the Buddha grew up, think of a macho culture. That's probably more what it was like than what you think of as India today. And people are quarreling. And he's like, I want some peace. And he couldn't find any until he looked into his heart and removed the barb. The barb is the craving and clinging. So, yeah, this is basically an early depiction of what's taught in the, the first three of the Four Noble Truths, the removal of desire and lust for what is seen, heard, thought, or cognized here. For anything liked or disliked, this is Nibbana, the imperishable state. Any questions on this one? Joshua. Hi, Lee. Thanks for your teaching. Uh, question, could you talk a little bit more about this notion of seclusion that keeps coming up? Um, yeah. Yeah, the Buddha was big on peace and quiet. There are suttas where, you know, he's there at the monastery and a bunch of monks show up and he's like, what's going on here? This sounds like fishermen hauling in a catch. You know, he's looking for peace and quiet. And he, he, he frequently is recommending that you go off by yourself and meditate. So basically, he's recommending go on retreat, you know, whether it be self-retreat or a formal retreat with a teacher and interviews or anything. But at least at some point during the day, get yourself secluded enough and do your daily practice. And so that's what he's talking about, the seclusion. Get yourself out of the busy world that we normally operate in and see can you actually get to a place where you can hear yourself think or even better hear yourself not think. So it's not being in the seclusion the entire time. You have to interact with you. It is better the more you can be secluded, right? Um, So I spent 20 out of 36 months at the forest refuge on retreat in seclusion. It was powerful. It was really powerful. I learned more in those 20 months than I had in any previous 20-month period, actually any previous several-year period, just simply because day after day, just keep practicing. It wasn't that I got an insight a day. That was definitely not the case. But every now and then, I'd get an insight, and every now and then, the insights I got were just completely beyond anything I'd ever conceptualized before. And it's just a matter of putting in the time. So that's what he's suggesting. And so what we want to do is do the seclusion bit as much as makes sense for us, given the life that we're leading. 
Thank you. Right. Okay. Move on to the last one we're going to do today. In whom sensual pleasures do not dwell, and for whom there is no craving is crossed over doubt, what kind is their liberation? So what's it like to be someone in whom sensual pleasures do not dwell, and there's no craving and no doubt? And the Buddha replies, in whom sensual pleasures do not dwell, and for whom there is no craving, and who've crossed over doubts, their liberation is none other than this. This is what it means to be fully liberated, fully awakened, enlightened. Are they free of hope, or are they still in need of hope? Do they possess wisdom, or are they still forming wisdom? O Saki, elucidate the sage to me so that I may understand. They are free from hope. They are not in need of hope. They possess wisdom. They're not still forming wisdom. That is how to understand a sage, one who has no thing unattached to sensual life. So this is a pretty good depiction of Nibbana, right? Uh, Sensual pleasures do not dwell, no craving, crossed over doubt, not in need of hope, not in need of more wisdom. They've arrived. So this is what we're after. And just like you get to Carnegie Hall by practicing, that's how we get there as well. So we've covered the first half of this particular collection and we've got 20 minutes left for questions in general or on particular suttas uh, you could look back at the the summaries and perhaps uh, you'd find something there that you know you want more about jog your memory victoria i'm starting to feel very greedy here um, just cut me off again if, if uh, well, there's Sean. I know he asked questions too, so I feel okay so far. But throw me off if if you need to. Um, <laughs> um, this hope thing, that's now sticking in my craw. Because um, I don't see hope the way that you described it at all. I mean, I, that's that's the like the common parlance hope. Yeah, we say it all the time. I hope we're going to get, you know, ribs yeah. for dinner night or have a glass, whatever like that that's connected with craving and um not wanting to suffer and yeah however hope in a as a as a i'm wondering about it in the context of like the spiritual path of hope being because the way i see it um i mean i could quote the christian scriptures but i won't um but in general i see it as an orientation where where while we are still in this moment present moment hopefully if we're mindful and we're aware yet there's there's it's it's like a a double layer that we are we are aware of some ultimate it's kind of the relative absolute thing again that we're we're aware of an ultimate purpose an ult or an ultimate destination or um mm-hmm. yeah. and so i'm wondering if in fact hope 
is in seen that way is something almost essential for the spiritual path. In other words, um, and not in a trivial way of like, I hope I achieve Nibbana, you know, in the next, yeah, yeah. Kind of thing, but, but in the sense of like orientation, like not like lest we forget kind of uh, thing. Yeah. If you can do it without the concept of hope, okay, <laughs> orient yourself that way. I think it'll work better because the hope, hope seems a little disempowering. I hope it turns out all right. Well, yeah, I but hope. you're using it in that way. I mean, the root right. thing but, is fabulous, but and I know exactly what she meant, and I agree with her. I, I love the, um, but but that's not that's not what I'm talking about. Right. right. But what I'm saying is that the concept of hope that you're talking about is probably okay, but it's tinged with this kind of craving thing in there. And it's better if you could go, oh, yeah, well, it would be really good to actually make progress on the spiritual path. And I know the only way I can make progress is to do the practice and hoping and wishing is not going to do any good at all. It's better just go do the practice. So it's I, I see what you're pointing at, but I'm thinking that you can find a better word. One that doesn't have the the, the craving associated with it. But yeah, yeah. There's, there is the hope that if I do this really well, it will make my life better, right? But there there's can also be the, yeah, if I do this really well, this will make my life better without throwing the hope part in there. Well, I would reject, I would reject both of those statements as I mean I would reject both of those on the grounds of 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 clinging and and uh, craving both yeah. of what you said so I'm it's neither nor it's I'm I'm talking more about like just um like why are we all here today kind of thing like in other words just orientation that um this is whole yeah. this is wise Right. And all I'm saying is that the word hope, although it can orient you, it's got this little thing on the side that I I don't want to go there with that word. Okay. It's, Fair enough. It's, maybe it's just semantics. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. Okay, okay thank you. Right. Darden. Yes, thank you, Lee, for uh, this evening. Uh, I wanted to ask a question about something you said earlier about verbs versus nouns, which I found helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, if I'm not mistaken, the Pali, there's also very little nouns, if no, if not no nouns. So I wonder if this is some kind of truth that's already captured by the Pali or, uh, because the Pali, of course, was a lot earlier than the Buddha. But I, I just wondered about that, if, if you could say something yeah. about it. So Pali is far more verb oriented than English. English is very noun oriented, but Navajo is even more verb oriented than Pali. Okay. So Pali's going in the right direction, definitely, but I, I think Navajo is even, even closer to reality. And so when you understand the verb orientation of the Pali and you're reading the suttas and you can retranslate the translation into a more verb-oriented sense, you're probably closer to what the Buddha actually meant because it gets translated into English and therefore it starts losing some of the verb aspects of it. So yeah, you're exactly right. The, the more verb uh, feeling you get when you read a sutta, the, the better 
the closer I think you're probably going to get to what the Buddha was actually talking about. Thank you. And, and do you think it could be a helpful practice to just start verbing things, like, like you said about the treeing? So, yeah. Uh, to, to... Yeah, it is a helpful practice. I have done that. Again, go for a walk. I mean, I, I highly recommend going for a walk in nature. Yeah. Go for a walk in nature and see all the verbs around you. The, the trees are treeing. They're doing it kind of slowly. But the birds are birding. They're, they're moving a little faster and the leaves are falling. And yeah, so just trying to experience the world more from a verb standpoint than a noun standpoint is really good. Yeah. I mean, the ideal thing, we'd all both learn Pali and Navajo, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Probably not going to happen, but you can still do it in English or Dutch. <laughs> right. Chuck. Hi, Lee. Nice to see you again. Um, I had a question about, uh, so, so um, this is from two different monastics, uh, prominent uh, Theravadan monastics, uh, around what you were talking about with um the in, employing the uh ultimate view at times and employing the relative view at times so one monastic uh, has uh told me that that is the middle way the middle way is between sort of the extremes of uh of those two um perspectives Mm -hmm. And another monastic who's perhaps a little bit more um, uh, conservative or, or more t uh, strictly in this uh, taking the sutta or, you know, early Buddhist uh, tradition uh, perspective um, was saying that that's, that's garbage. And that, that actually it's, 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 it's the ultimate perspective is what the Buddha is, is pointing you to. And that's the direction to go. And you're over, at least over time, that's where you want to move towards. So it's not so much of this or thing. And, um, and, you know, you could hold both, I think, to some degree. Yeah. It's just curious yeah. what, in terms of the middle way, what's, What's your thought on that? Yeah, I wouldn't have used the middle way between the relative and the absolute. Uh, but I would say that both are required. I mean, you can't cross the street from the ultimate perspective. You, you really need to look both ways and make sure there's no cars coming. And that's all dropping back into the relative perspective. When you're eating your peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you have to know the difference between the sandwich and your fingers. That's relative perspective. So I wouldn't say it's between the two. I'd say that you have to operate with both. And what the Buddha is trying to do is get you a clearer view of the ultimate perspective. But the only way you can do it is by throwing relative concepts at you. You know, fingers pointing at the moon, only I guess this is fingers pointing at Andromeda because it's not as easy to see as the moon, so that you can look in the right direction and begin to get the sense of what's going on. So I wouldn't put it in the middle way there. I would put it that you should do both. The middle way is middle way between extremes. And, you know, the, the original one is extremes of sensual indulgence and uh, asceticism. 
but it's also the extremes between existence and non-existence, which I think is the most profound. That's Samyutta 1215, if you want to look it up. Um, and yeah, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't use it as the middle way between the two. I'd say I don't latch on to either one fully. Uh, use the appropriate one depending on the circumstances. Thank you. Right. Clara Lynn. Yeah, hi, hi Lee. Um, I, I had to put my hand up when we started really digging into the language, right? So this is a Pali <laughs> scholar, so yes. What, my my first Pali teacher was Richard Gombrich, and one of the first things out of his mouth was Pali is a language of verbs, yeah. right? And it's kind of like the verbs are the basic building blocks, and they have what they call primary and secondary derivatives built on the verbs many of which are the nouns. So, you know, it's really helpful to think of verbs as the main building block in Pali. Um, So that's one. But then um, when I raised my hand was to bring up this point in relation to this word that we're translating as hope, because what's the root of that word? We're seeing it like nirasa. Okay, take the nir off. That's a prefix. And we're left with asa. That's, That's what we're translating as hope. Um, it comes from the root to desire, right? To seek, to desire. So anything that's built on this verbal root, ish, is, has this kind of moving out, I want it, feel to it. And you look at the other definitions and it's like, um, you know, desire, expectation. So it's different from what, what I would think of as like, you know, charting the course, you know, we're going that way. That's just a fact. But but this this asa this root is has this this desire built into it. So it's a great example of how yeah the the verbal roots are the building blocks, and it's it's useful to to think of that and remember that. Great, thank you, Clara Land. That that really helpful. Excellent, Alex. Thank you so much for the talk, and I'm looking forward to the second part. Uh, when is it next week? No, it's two weeks from today. Two weeks from today. All right, sounds good. Um, so the question I have is about the something that you said about the long time you were spending on retreat. And uh, you said, uh, find something that works in your life, something like that, right? So to me, that's uh, like, uh, I'm not so sure how to, A, how to do this, what works, what does it mean what works in your life? I I tend to like, notice what like doesn't work in my life or like I overdid <laughs> it or maybe I neglected the other thing or whatever. Right. And then, but then you can look at it and say, do I need to be paying more attention to that other thing? What I call neglect. Maybe that's like my previous understanding, but now maybe there's no need to do it. To give an uh, example, like uh, really short is that like right now I'm replacing sleep with meditation, you know, to fit more meditation into my normal life, you know, when I work also full time, right? And seems to be working fine for me. But, you know, anybody I tell you, uh, I mean, anybody I tell this, they're like, oh my gosh, you know, how do you feel and stuff like that? I'm like, I'm fine. But am I fine? I don't know. Like, so how how do you do this? um, Find what works for you? And what does it mean what works for me? And also like this hope and like, do what needs to be done instead of hoping. Well, does that getting to the other shore is the only thing that needs to be done? Yeah. So the Buddha said, I teach 
only dukkha and the end of dukkha. So he's only teaching how to get to the other shore. There's a lot more we can learn in life other than how to get rid of dukkha. But, you know, that's probably what mostly we want anyhow, is to get rid of dukkha. So how to figure out what works for you? Experiment and see if if sleeping an hour less gives you an hour more for practice and you're not falling asleep when you're meditating. Well, okay, that looks like it's working and you keep playing with it. And if it seems like your life is going well, yeah, that works. I did the exact same thing. What I gave up was smoking marijuana. Okay. When I gave up smoking marijuana, (laughs) I needed an hour less sleep and I used that same hour for meditating when I very first started out. And so, yeah, I gave up an hour of sleep to meditate and it was great. Um, But yeah, it's given the constraints of the life you're leading. What can you do to advance on the spiritual path? And yeah, I quit my job. And so I had, (laughs) I had 24 hours every day to do whatever I wanted with. I had made enough money as a computer programmer that I could afford to run off to the forest refuge and go on retreat for long periods of time, come out occasionally and teach another retreat and then go back in and do it again. And so it worked great for me. But if I couldn't do it while I was working, um, my, I was neglecting my own practice, working as a computer programmer and teaching retreats every now and then. Uh, and so it was great when I could completely neglect the computer programming because I didn't need to do it and just replace it with with meditation. And it was, it was really profound. So you have to figure out, OK, this is a priority. How can I fit it in? And it may be that, yeah, you just do an hour a day because that's all you can do. And when it's time for your vacation, yeah, you need to go see your relatives and you can't go on retreat. I was lucky because I wasn't on the leading edge of what the company was doing. I was just a maintenance programmer. But that meant that, yeah, I could take time off without pay and go on a month-long retreat while I was a programmer. I had the perfect setup and it worked. So, All right. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's it's a matter of just experimenting around and figure out what you what will work for you. Okay. okay. Last question, Lauren. Hi there. Um, yeah, I just I haven't heard before that the Buddha had started out on his path through um, kind of wanting to get away from quarrelling to um, find more peace. I just wondered, did you deduce that yourself through reading the suttas? And I'm quite new to sort of exploring the suttas myself. Um, I just wondered if you had any feels a bit kind of vast and overwhelming. I just wondered if you got any advice about how to start kind of my own exploration. Yeah. The best place to start is a book by Bhikkhu Bodhi entitled In the Buddha's Words. And he has, it's an anthology of suttas and he groups them by topic and he has a nice little introduction to the topic and then you read the suttas and you have some idea what you're reading because he gave you a nice introduction. Most of his introductions are useful. The one on dependent origination though, no, I give it, you know, thumbs down. Um, but the rest of it is pretty good. So that's the place to start. Okay. Uh, once you've worked with that, you might want to take a look at a book by Gil Fransdahl entitled The Buddha Before Buddhism. 
And the sutta I mentioned, where the Buddha left home looking for some peace, is actually covered in that particular book. So those would be the two books I would recommend to start. I have a reading list on my website for other books that I think are good. Uh, but these are the two books I would recommend to start with if you want to study suttas. Helpful. Thank you. All right. Thank you to all of you for showing up. Thank you for your generosity. And may any merit from this sharing of the Dharma be for the benefit and liberation of all beings everywhere. See you next week. <laughs>